Welcome back to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. David, it is a pleasure to have you back on the show. Uh, it's been a, almost a year. Has it been that long, Robbie? It seems but yesterday. I'm I'm telling you, man, you blink, time just flies right by. It's good to be back. I wanted to have you back on because I've been reading your sub stack a little bit. Uh, you've been talking a lot about Timothy Leary. I've been down the 60s and 70s rabbit hole just trying to understand the times. And I wanted to ask you just a really simple question. The Summer of Love, how would you explain it to new people? Um, I think you have to look at it, it, uh, it you know, where it came from. Um, some people argue that uh, the crucial year was not 67, but 65. Um, 65, LSD was still legal. Uh, uh, you couldn't be prosecuted for um, importing it or manufacturing it. And the mood, the political mood in America, as elsewhere, certainly in in uh, in the in the UK as well, was that there was an undercurrent of rebellion against the. Uh, a, against the conformist order and the, and the new consciousness I would say was uh, anti-imperialist opposition to the Vietnam War, Vietnam War. Um, uh, women's liberation was in its infancy um, anti-racism anti-consumerism and concern for the environment and over the next two years, uh, this consciousness kind of crystallized and it, it uh, manifested itself in, of all places, well, San Francisco, where you had um, a vast influx of uh, young people into the Haight-Ashbury area. And they were doing music and they were doing all sorts of all sorts of drugs, and the musical accompaniment to this uh, was um, uh, was led by by the Grateful Dead, who um, who had recruited Stanley Owsley as a technical advisor. Now Stanley Owsley was um, something of an electronic whiz kid who provided the Grateful Dead with all their equipment it, and made them sound absolutely great. And he was also a manufacturer of LSD in um, his secret labs. And Owsley was, um, a, he, called himself an, he called himself an alchemist. Um, he believed that um, the old alchemic idea of transforming lead into gold was actually a metaphor for transforming consciousness. And he thought that, um, as a lot of people did, including the Grateful Dead and countless others, and Timothy Leary, and to a certain extent, uh, the uh, CIA, that um, 
LSD was the key to um, changing uh, consciousness for the better. So that's... I think in the government's mind, for the better is a, a different word than I would use. I feel like they used it for more uh, nefarious purposes. They found some somehow, it, it, you know, when you look up the word mind control, it sounds like a comic book or a movie or something like that. But then it's right in their documents talking about this mind bending drug that is used for mind control. And it was LSD happened to be one of the most advantageous to those forms. The CIA certainly tried to um, use LSD as a tool for manipulation. In a, a lot of the uh, top honchos in the CIA, including Sidney Gottlieb, were themselves enthusiastic trippers. But they didn't want it to spread. Uh, they wanted to control it. And what happened was uh, a lot of the um, of the scientists in the in, in the medical profession who were assigned to conduct experiments with LSD in hospitals, especially prisons, to a certain extent. Um, they found that rather than just a tool of manipulation, it could actually help people to think. It could um, it could empower people's imagination. And there was an experiment, experimental program, by uh, two guys called James Fadiman in Milan Stolova, who did experiments on um, mid-60s. They did experiments on computer buffs, architects, and engineers. And they found that, um, given the right circumstances, settings, set in setting, um, they could uh, stimulate people's creativity and um, Stylerov and Fadiman were very hostile to uh, Timothy Leary because he stole their moniker yeah because he wanted to spread LSD all over the world right he he wanted to make it uh, make LSD for the masses because he naively believed that if you throw LSD to the four winds, it'll it 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 it, it would revolutionize the world. And um Stylerov and Fadiman, who um were not a million miles from the CIA, um thought that uh, Leary was being totally irresponsible. And if you look at the um at the current uh, works on um on, on psychedelics, uh, I call it the new revisionism. They say that if Leary hadn't got in the way, and all you hippies like like Stanley Owsley and Nick Sand and Tim Scully and the Grateful Dead and God knows who else, if they hadn't uh, spread 
uh, uh, the sink to the four winds. Um, responsible experimentation uh, wouldn't have been closed down as it was. So does that make him a good person or a bad person? Because I think some of that experimentation ended up being pretty bad. I mean, Operation Midnight Climax is a good example, but LSD testing and maybe seeing where it could go in the human consciousness could have been a better route. I just don't know because, like I said, I mean, what's your opinion on Timothy Leary? A lot of people have varying opinions on him. makes it kind of hard to understand if he was a good guy or a bad guy or just a joker. Some people actually think he was um, a CIA agent. Um, As of right I, now, I do. <laughs> but, well, he said himself that if you look at his career, he, he said this in his old age, he said, looking back on his career, a lot of his activities were uh, were guided by people who um, were almost certainly in the in the in the uh, CIA. Uh, going back to the fifties, before he got into psychedelic drugs, uh, Timothy Leary developed a personality testing program, right, which was which was designed for um, to uh, find if um, if the right person was the right person for the job in hand. And, and this research that uh, Timothy Leary did was actually co-opted by the CIA. So uh, Leary's um, relation with the CIA goes back goes right back to the 50s. And he was quite aware that uh, when he was conducting experiments at Harvard with psilocybin in LSD, that the CIA were taking an interest in his experiments. And when he was kicked out of the university and uh, set up his his, um, institute at uh, Millbrook in upstate New York, in the stately home of uh, uh, William Hitchcock, he was quite aware that uh, uh, the CIA were taking interest in that as well. And almost certainly uh, CIA agents participated in that. So uh, Leary's attitude towards the CIA is... uh, well, of course, they were interested in what I was doing, and they may have even guided what I was doing. But um, and this is a, a direct quote. But the CIA are the best mafia you can deal with. I mean, who would you rather deal with? I don't know. Have you ever dealt with the IRS? They're paying the ass. Yeah, exactly. I can only imagine what the CIA's like. Yeah, so the CIA were in the background throughout Leary's life, but the but the people who really gave him grief wasn't so much the CIA as the um, uh, the drug enforcement agency in the FBI. Now, uh, uh, when Leary um, escaped from prison in 1971, he was sprung by. The Weather Underground, this is something that your uh, 
podcaster Ron Ron Jacobs knows all about. Yeah, for like twenty five thousand dollars. I've seen accounts vary from twenty thousand to twenty five thousand, from the Brotherhood of Eternal Love to the Weather Underground. That's a, that, that sounds about right. So they sprang him from prison. I don't think that I don't think the CIA had a, a, anything to do with it. In the Drug Enforcement Agency and the FBI were asleep on the job. So then uh, they send him to well. As far as the weather underground were concerned, there was three parts in, in the mission. First part was get Leary out, out of prison and get him out of the country. The second was to get Leary to Algeria, where he could hook up with the Black Panther faction led by Elridge Cleaver. Now, Elridge Cleaver's operation in Algeria was definitely infiltrated by the CIA. And um, the thing about Eldridge Cleaver is I don't want to denigrate the, the honourable history of the Black Panthers because the Black Panthers um, were a very important factor in American history and they were targeted by uh, J. Edgar Hoover's murderous Coental Pro operation. Uh, a lot of them were assassinated by the Chicago police or by informers. Um, Fred Hampton being one of them. Fred Hampton being one of them, who was shot dead after he'd surrendered. Well, he was sleeping at the time it happened. Uh, you're right. You're right. There was someone else who was shot dead after he surrendered. That was Fred Mark Ham Clark. Yeah. Fred Hampton was shot while he was asleep. Now, the thing about Eldridge Cleaver is that he was he was not a nice person. He was slightly mad, in fact. He was paranoid. Um, he didn't trust anyone. He didn't trust Leary. He didn't trust Angela Davis. He didn't trust his friends in the Black Panthers. And he became a supporter of uh, Kim Il-sung, the Stalinist dictator of North Korea. And so, to come back, the second part of the mission was to get Leary to Algeria and uh, form an alliance between uh, Leary's faction of, of the Black Panthers and the Weather Underground and various international radicals. And the third part was for Leary to, to have a... LSD tripping session with Eldridge Cleaver and try and make him a nicer, more cooperative person. So Leary did that and it totally failed because all it did was exacerbate Eldridge Cleaver's paranoia. And um, uh, Cleaver started to give uh, Leary a very bad time. At one point, he um, imprisoned a, a uh, Leary and his partner Rosemary at gunpoint and from that moment on Leary decided to get out of Algeria and he, he, his next stop was Switzerland right where he was uh, the guest of, an, of, an, of an, uh, a notorious arms dealer called Michel Horshard 
um, who was probably connected with the, with the CIA as well. So, as you know, um, from that point on, he spent some time in Switzerland. The American government were, were trying to extradite him. Um, uh, Leary ended up in uh, Afghanistan. And as soon as he got off the plane in Afghanistan, he was arrested courtesy of the Drug Enforcement Agency. Um, also, probably with the help of informers like uh, Dennis Martino, and was sent back to the States, where he basically blagged his way out of prison by cooperating with the FBI, not the CIA, the FBI. Um, and he basically cooperated with the FBI, told them everything he knew about the weather underground, um, about the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, which, frankly, uh, wasn't much because he didn't... Uh, 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 Leary had no hand in the, um, in the Brotherhood of Eternal Love's LSD manufacture program, which was... Um, run by Tim Scully and Nick Sand. So, um, was Leary in the CIA? No. Um, uh, did he have a relationship with them? Yes, he did. That's the way I would put it. I think, yeah, I don't think he was necessarily like a member or a person getting a paycheck. I just think it was kind of like they were guiding his path. Um, you know, the government had all the LSD. From what I can tell, they bought up all the LSD or wanted the whole supply of it or tried to get the whole supply of it. Um, but then you have these figures that are handing out LSD, which seems like they're manufacturing it themselves. Now, do I know if they were manufacturing it? I don't. I mean, why was Leary getting so much praise from all these counterculture groups like the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, like the Weather Underground? Why do they have such admiration for this figure who really wasn't connected to any of them? Because he was a guru. Um, I've met a palm reader once, but you don't see me following him around. <laughs> I mean, uh, guru. Uh, when I say guru, uh, Leary wrote all his books, right? Um, and he invented the slogan, um, turn on, tune in, drop out. So Leary was... Um, he was basically worshipped by the counterculture. Now, you say that the American government had all the LSD. Yeah, that's true. But in 1965 onwards, uh, underground laboratories started to manufacture it, in quite independently of uh, Leary and the American government. I mean, uh, Nick Sand, who... Um, Who was um, he went on on the run in the seventies? Um, he was um, he was finally caught in uh, nineteen ninety five. He said that he personally had, had uh, manufactured 
140 million LSD trips, right? Uh, that's enough to to trip the entire adult population of um, uh, England and France, right? A hell of a lot, because he believes in it, right? He believed he, um, it it was good for the world, right? In that sense, he was naive. And his partner, Tim Scully, who was also um, who was trained by Stanley Owsley, um, initially agreed with that, that if you if you manufacture enough LSD, and you're talking about hundreds of millions of trips, you could change the world. Now uh, Tim Scully um, eventually decided that uh, that was a very naive uh, belief, and uh, partly was uh, partly his reason was that uh, Nick Sand was using the Hell's Angels to uh, 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 to distribute the stuff, and. Uh, uh, Tim Scully had a very low opinion of the Hell's Angels because he used to kill people and he used to sell heroin as well, along with the along with the LSD. And LSD did not change their consciousness for the better. You know, you, if someone is is um, is bad and manipulative, uh, giving them LSD will just Amplify um, their negative aspects. Do you think that was on intentional, though? Like, I'm not saying Timothy Leary's bad, but if you look at the figures that ended up getting a hold of LSD or being attached somehow to the cultural movement of LSD, they're not necessarily like the sanest people around. I mean, I'm not saying that they're crazy individuals. The government, yes, but Manson being an example of a person that was getting LSD and he's attached to the whole hippie movement, kind of like the sacrificial lamb, even though he wasn't a hippie, but he also, if I'm not mistaken, brokered a piece between the hell's angels and another group um, Manson did. So, I mean, there's a connection there, but I just kind of wonder, I mean, if you're the government testing a drug like LSD, you don't want academics and other people getting aboard testing LSD to figure out what it can do you just want to do the research yourself, then it'd be really good to create a couple of boogeymen who are out there taking this drug and going crazy from it. Necessarily might not even be LSD. They just, you just attach it to them. Oh, they took LSD. They could have took something else, but then everyone gets scared of it. Take, take these hippies away from me. They're all cultist killers like Manson. That's not true, but it's what happened. Well, I, I think as regards the academics, uh, the CIA were fine with them. Uh, with the academics, providing they could more or less control them, or if the if the academics were answerable to the establishment, which um, Stolaroff and Fadiman certainly were, along with um, uh, Captain Trips, um, Alfred Hubbard. No, oh, I'll say who's Captain Trips. Um. He was a kind of freelance intelligence agent, and um, he got his uh, 
is LSD direct from Switzerland. And he distributed amongst the elite in, in places like Washington. He, he tripped out um, politicians, um, artists, um, uh, writers, and everyone thought he was a really nice guy, but um, he hated Leary. He met Leary um, more or less on an intelligence gathering mission, but he couldn't stand the fact that Leary wanted to uh, make this drug available to the masses. Right. Um, so Alfred Hubbard, um, he wasn't actually in in the CIA. Uh, he created this legend for himself as um, having uh, helped the American war effort in World War Two, which was something of a something of a, a something of a myth. Um, so you had people like him on on the scene. As well as the academics, who he was, he was collaborating with, trying to keep the lid on on, uh, on the distribution of LSD. In contrast to Leary, who wanted to, uh, to to turn on the whole world. Now, why was California so? like a prominent location for all these groups and individuals to go there. I mean, I know it was kind of like the Haight-Ashbury clinics was like, or not clinics, but Haight-Ashbury was kind of this whole place where LSD was just on the street, all these young kids going there, wanting to ha make love and have drugs and do all these types of things. But it's only really California you hear about when it comes to the whole hippie movement. Like I'm sure there were hippies in other locations, but it just seems like this was just a, I don't know the Vegas of it all to use uh, that old reference, but I, I mean, you mentioned '65 being kind of like a prominent point. When would you say the end really was? Do you think it was the Manson stuff that kind of ended the whole movement? I mean, like how many groups were really beneficial or born out of the whole summer of love? Well, on the negative side, the two things spring to mind. One of them is Manson. And the other one is uh, the notorious Altamont Pop Festival, which were both about the same time, right? You know about the Altamont Pop Festival? No, it I know more about Manson. <laughs> it started the rule. It started. It started the Rolling Stones, and everyone wanted to create another Woodstock, right? Peace and love, all that kind of stuff. Altamont was a complete disaster. Because the organizers put the Hell's Angels in charge of security. And most of the people there were stoned. And 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 the Hell's Angels were the police, essentially. And they were really nasty. They beat people up and even killed one person. Right. So that was the end of the Summer of Love. Um, it ended in 69, I would say. What would you say was, I guess, some of the main influencers of the whole Summer of Love, besides Timothy Leary, but maybe more counterculture groups? I mean, would you say the Brotherhood of Eternal Love was an influence to the whole Summer of Love? Well, the Brotherhood of Eternal Love um, 
weren't quite on the weren't quite on the scene as regards um, the major players manufacturers at LSG. It was Stanley Owsley and Tim Scully who supplied the, uh, the particular type of LSG called orange orange uh, orange sunshine, right? And that's what was around uh, Woodstock. And so, what were the main the main cultural influences? I would say the important thing was the music, also the literature to a certain extent, but especially the music. Um, uh, you, if you look at the history of uh, music in the nineteen sixties, say starting with uh, 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 starting with the Beatles in 1965 with the album Revolver, you could say that most of the innovations in 1960s music was uh, influenced by LSD tripping. And it had a remarkable effect. And it was basically the music that brought people together. I mean, I say this uh, as a musician myself, um, who um, who was old old enough uh, to remember all this stuff? Uh, the music brought people together. The drugs influence of the drugs was more ambivalent. It, taking LSD didn't didn't necessarily make you a better person. It didn't heighten your consciousness. It could just make, if you were a hedonist, it could just make it worse. But that's a price you pay. You know, history works in contradictions. Now, do you think it was just the reason why there were so many, I would would say, tragic events that kind of happened that turned the summer of love into kind of a summer of hate? Was because of the sensitivity of the times? It seemed like you had a lot of kids that were really trying to live life and enjoy and try and find meaning a little bit. You know, you can mention the drugs and things of that sort, but they're really just a bunch of 20-year-old kids just looking to try and find purpose. I mean, Manson kind of preyed on that, but there was much that was going on to that time period, even the government experimenting with drugs on unwitting civilians. You know, like how did they get involved into the Haight-Ashbury Medical Clinic? You know, there's a lot of stuff that if you looked at the transformation of that whole area, the Haight-Ashbury, it went downhill so quickly after 69. I mean, homelessness was off the charts. There's a lot of things going on. And for the first couple of years, it was fine. It was good. It was, you know, a lot of people were enjoying life and really having a go at it, but it just seemed so many events unfolded in that time and it never really recovered. Yeah. It's a very dark period. Um, I mean, you, you mentioned Manson and 20-year-olds. Uh, Manson was actually corrupting 14-year-olds. You know, 14-year-old runaways who'd uh, heard about this wonderful place here at Astrobury in San Francisco and went there, you know, to have a great time. And the whole scene was corrupted very quickly because the... Um, 
uh, drug dealers, right? They weren't interested in raising consciousness. Uh, they were uh, dis distributing horrible stuff like uh, STP, speed, heroin. Yeah, you know, they didn't care. And these fourteen-year-old kids, you know, weren't weren't old enough to make a rational decision on what drugs to take. So, uh, it it was perfect for someone like Manson, um, a murderous psychopath, to exploit uh, these people, um, uh, and um, uh, you know, build up his cult. Um, and as uh, Tom O'Neill demonstrates in his book, uh, the Manson cult um, was um, was being monitored by uh, shady intelligence agencies, in, probably including the CIA, uh, but at, at, at arm's length. Um, Dr. Jolyon West, right, who was um, who was certainly part of the MK Ultra program. Um, he was connected with the Haight Ashbury Medical Center, you know, which was set up to uh, deal with people having bad trips, and actually monitors them. And manipulated them, and manipulated Manson. Um, uh, you know, one of the people Manson shot was uh, a black guy who we thought was in in the Black Panthers. The guy survived, but um, so the. Uh, San Francisco and Los Angeles police were quite happy to use people like Manson to undermine the Black Panthers. Why was there, I guess, this whole influx with the Black Panthers? Why was the Black Panthers involved over there? The LSD scene just doesn't seem like, from what I've learned about them, that they were interested in. No, they weren't. I know they even had problems with the weather underground at a certain point. Fred Hampton definitely did. Yeah. The um, uh, as I indicated earlier, the Black Panthers were split between the Elvis Cleaver faction, which was basically New York, and the um, uh, faction led by David Hilliard in San Francisco, who um, weren't into Cleaver's um, mad Stalinism and um, armed struggle. It, 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 you know, the original idea of the Black Panthers was not to use weapons, guns, offensively. It was to protect um, the Black community. And at this, at this time, before they changed the gun laws, um, people were allowed to... Um, uh, use guns to protect the communities. Um, but it, it, once the Black Panthers started doing that to protect themselves against the murderous cops in Chicago and elsewhere, 
the state came down on them like a ton of bricks. And um, uh, when Eldridge Cleaver was forced to leave the country, he took some of the worst elements of the Black Panthers with him, you know, the most violent ones. Um, and you, he set up an embassy, you know, at the Black Panther embassy in uh, Algeria at the behest of the Algerian government, which at the time was um, kind of, kind of, kind of radical. So, yeah, the Black Panthers weren't really into it. Um, uh, like you say, they did not get on well with the weather underground. They regarded them as, you know, middle-class white adventurers, which they were. You you mentioned Owsley. How did Owsley get a hold of LSD? Well, he originally got it from... Um, he got it when it was still legal. He um, he had um, 300 milligrams of um, Sandus LSD from Switzerland, and he and he and he found it a life changing experience, and he started manufacturing it in a laboratory. You mentioned the underground laboratories. How do they get, is it just individual ones that these groups had, or was it under some umbrella of a company or corporation? It was basically good old-fashioned American enterprise. Um, like McDonald's. McDonald's, yeah. The um, I, I mean, they were, they were quite ingenious. I mean, if you look at um, Nick Sand and Tim Scully, they were buying the ingredients in San Francisco uh, and the equipment in San Francisco. You know, they were buying the um, various ingredients from various chemical companies, and uh, the feds, which which were the forerunner to the Drug Enforcement Agency, knew what they were up to and followed them about all over the place. But little did the feds know that Sand and Scully weren't interested in manufacturing LSD in San Francisco. They had a secret lab in Denver and they managed to um, shake off the surveillance of, 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 of the feds, took all the equipment to Denver and started manufacturing vast quantities of LSD. Um, and they were trained by Stanley Eisen. Now, there was lots of LSD labs all over the place. Uh, we only know about them if they get discovered, but there was a lot of them. So, um, like I say, by this time, LSD had escaped the clutches of the CIA. It was now... Uh, Illegal drug manufacture was now a problem for the feds and the police. Now, you mentioned that all we've discovered when it comes to those labs, how much of the history of LSD do you think that we just don't know yet or it might be lost? Quite a lot. There are two factors. Uh, like I say, 
a lot of the labs weren't discovered. And if the people are still around, they're going to take the secrets uh, to the grave. You know, um, the second factor is that um, the full history of the CIA's involvement with LSD was lost when Sidney Gottlieb destroyed the files in 1973. Because if you remember in 1973, uh, Richard Nixon was on the way out. Um, journalists were starting to ask questions. Uh, people who'd been experimented on were consulting their lawyers. So Sidney Gottlieb went to the CIA archives and uh, destroyed all the operational files and they were lost to history. Fortunately, um, a researcher called John Marks, who wrote a marvellous book called The Manchurian Candidate, discovered the financial records which hadn't been destroyed. Uh, Gottlieb had, uh, had neglected that. So it became clear that in 1973 it became clear that the uh, that the CIA had an in, had a vast interest in LSD experiments from the 1950s onwards, and one suspects, although we can't prove it, that in those files Manson would have been there. I definitely think so. I think Tom O'Neill's done great work on that, but I'm curious if Mark Chapman would be involved in that. I don't think he was given LSD, but I had a guest on as a friend of mine, David Whelan. I mean, if you look up his name, you'll see two shooters in the John Lennon assassination because they found two different types of bullet. And it's not listed by the DA's office or anything, but it's listed by the coroner's report of all the autopsy on John Lennon. They pulled two different types of bullets out of John Lennon's body. Um, and if you also look up a guy named David Halloran, he was the guy who actually treated John Lennon, who's been silent for 30-something years. He let some other guy, Stephen Lynn, take the credit for it. And that guy's been exposed as being a liar. He talked about pumping John's heart. Well, one of the people that visited Mark Chapman, because guess who decided to defend him was John Marks decided to defend Mark Chapman. Um, he had a friend named Milton Klein. And Milton Klein was on a documentary about MK Ultra boasting about how you can make a patsy within three months. And that is proven that Milton Klein had visited Mark Chapman because apparently Mark Chapman was visited by Milton Klein. Then he tells John Marks, the lawyer, uh, maybe it's not the same John Marks, but he tells him, no, I'm going to plead guilty. So all this evidence in the trial was there's it wasn't going to be a trial. Mark Chapman was going straight to jail. All this evidence was going to come out. Well, Mark Chapman talked about that. He watched a battle between angels and demons on his cell floor. And at the end of the battle, the angels won, and the general, a small little person, got up into his hand. He put it up to his ear, and the general said, plead guilty. And that's why Mark Chapman pled guilty. Well, that little people kingdom, if you look it up, people say he always talked about a little people kingdom. I don't know, because it only comes out after Milton Klein visit, visits him. So, I mean, 
that's mo- one of the many coincidences of an MK Ultra doctor visiting somebody, much like Jack Ruby. Why did Joyon West visit Jack Ruby? You know, it brings up questions. I'm not trying to get super conspiratorial, but you start wondering why, like, why was the 60s and 70s nothing but lone assassins and all these people? Like, it's did, did it stop? I mean, we don't see as many crazy nut jobs shooting people now. You know, you know, maybe different when it comes to school stuff in today's times. But back then, it seemed like everybody was a lone assassin trying to kill a political figure or trying to kill some type of. And it's just I, it's it's just strange. And I mean, if you really examine the MK Ultra theory or the idea, did I mean, did they find a way to manipulate people's consciousness? Yeah. Did they find a way to brainwash people or use mind control with LSD? Yeah. Do you think they just stopped? Why would you stop at doing something successful? I mean, it took them, what, years to admit to possibly killing Frank Olson by dosing him. And, uh, you know, that I think has been admitted. The CIA paid off the family. Yeah. And um, and the evidence in, um, what's it, um, in the book about Olsen, uh, by Hank, can't remember his second name. Oh, Al- Alabaria. That's him. He challenges the story that, uh, the cover story of the CIA, that they gave him LSD in that he committed suicide. He actually, Alabaria actually argues that they gave him LSD, um, and they killed him to stop him talking. Now, as regards the assassinations, you've got, uh, well, it's name but four. Uh, John F. Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King. Right. Um, so there's something, there was something going on, yeah. Do you believe and that it, when they say MK Ultra was unsuccessful? Do you believe that? Um, as someone t- told uh, Tom O'Neill uh, when he suggested that uh, the Jolian West uh, business was a CIA operation that went wrong, he uh, uh, the respondent said no, a CIA operation that went right. Yeah, they knew what they were doing. How do you think that they manipulated LSD to get people to be brainwashed or mind control or turn into some type of truth serum? I mean, we know about like Vacaville Prison was another place that they were experimenting on prisoners with all types of barbiturates and different types of drugs that were used in MKUltra. Yeah, I think the whole thing involves... um... More than just drugs, it also involves uh, personality testing. You've got uh, um, uh, 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 you can't just take anyone off the street. You have to select them. Um, as you know, there's this incredible mystery around Sirhan Sirhan, right? The guy who shot, who was supposed to have shot Robert Kennedy. Um, so. You've got to find the right kind of personality and you have to manipulate them either by um, up to 
up to the level of direct threats, um, uh, massage their egos, and um, I convince them that they ought to go out and kill someone. Um, as we said, it, a lot of this stuff is in the files out there. Uh, Gottlieb destroyed. I mean, do you think things like Jonestown and a lot of stuff that is very controversial and a lot very, very heavy, these are some of the examples that could be talked about when it comes with MKUltra? Because I know we don't know because of the documentation, but... I mean, like I mentioned with Timothy Leary, not necessarily being an agent of the government, but being someone that was manipulated by the government. I mean, it served pretty good if you look at the way we remember the 60s and 70s or the average public is taught the 60s and 70s. It was this kind of crazy, wild times that ended up going bad because of all these individual figures that have this either crazy personality. Was that always there? I mean, Timothy Leary was a professor. And then just takes LSD and decides that he wants to be this loose cannon. I mean, I guess I can buy that, but it seems like you kind of have to challenge the notion of religion. You have to challenge the notion of all these things. And I don't mean say it doesn't exist, but you can't. Why is it, we don't talk about Jonestown and how the fact that there were children and elderly people at that camp that I'm pretty sure couldn't commit suicide or didn't conceive of that but we just call it oh they drank kool-aid oh they're all a bunch of religious nuts and then we don't talk about it that doesn't make sense you know what i mean like i'm not trying to sound nut nut job but it seems like that religion wall comes up everyone just goes okay that makes sense and walks away well that's a very interesting point um because religion is often tied up with cults right and uh, uh manson uh, was a leader of a cult which he built possibly with the help from um, secretive agencies. There were a lot of cults, you know, uh, especially in California. You know, still now, you know, California is full of cults. Um, um, Georgetown was a cult. In part of the uh, mind control prog uh, project, MK Ultra was to, uh, was uh, to study the anthropology of cults, and the questions would be how do you, how uh, um, how do you build a cult, and how do you manipulate a cult? Yeah, so there's questions about Jonestown certainly. Um, it has to be speculation though. As regards Chapman, now it's interesting. Um. Uh, back in, in the 90s, um, early 90s, was a book by a British barrister called um, Fenton Bresler, who wrote a book called Who Killed John Lennon? And he studied the whole thing. And he said that uh, the only thing he, he could prove is that there was... Um, a period in Chapman's life uh, comprising only a few weeks before he killed John Lennon that um, can't be accounted for and are slightly mysterious. And he speculates, and it's only speculation, that um, Chapman was um, Chapman was manipulated in that 
Chapman had been involved in a cult in, I think it was Hawaii. So, called the YMCA. Uh, yes, yes. So I remember I reviewed this book uh, for a magazine in the early nineties, where I said, "Hmm, interesting, not proven." That's, that's my line. That's my line. That's fair. You still you still believe that today, even with all, all the changes that we've had on information that comes out. I haven't seen the latest information. I'd want to study it. I'm open to um, suge- uh, suggestions. Because Jonestown with Jim Jones, there was World Vision, um, which was another kind of weird. And World Vision also came in contact with Mark Chapman and um, other John Hinckley as well, too. Um, remind, so, me, uh, remind me who John Hinckley is. John Hinckley's the guy who shot Reagan. Right. So I, I definitely think like, no, there's no doubt about it. It was Hinckley that did it. You know, just like there was no doubt about it that Mark Chapman did it. But I'm just saying there might have been other factors um, that have done that. You know, we despite all the controversy behind like MKUltra, why do you think there's this dark side of history that isn't really acknowledged? Like academics don't talk about this type of stuff. Uh, they call it a conspiracy. I mean, you probably come across it with even some of your work on, unless you're talking about Timothy Leary or certain individual groups. But if you even get near the government type aspect of things, like, oh, yeah, the government did this to people, Operation Midnight Climax, academics like bat their hands and walk away. They're like, nope, that's a conspiracy. You're not going to listen to it. But I'm like, well, it's documented. And all you got to do is just search it up and you'll be able to see a bunch of things about it. But, you know, you can read documents on it as well, too. You see, it, it's one thing. It's one thing to believe in the conspiracy theory of history that started off two, 200 years ago with um, uh, various books coming out. You know, how did the French Revolution happen? How did the American Revolution happen? There must have been some kind of conspiracy. Okay, in the go right through history, trying to explain history as the work of secret societies. Now, there's a difference between that and accepting, which a lot of, as you say, academics do not, that there are conspiracies, right? There are real conspiracies that are worth investigating by historians. I mean, uh, Nick Sands, with his 140 million tabs of LSD, he did as a conspiracy. You know, that's a fact. There's that song by Carol King about the 60s um, where assassins, by coincidence, did do the right people in. Yeah. Just by coincidence, because it's a, uh, uh, there's a few nuts on the go, right, with guns. Um, but uh, the nuts with the guns don't exist in a vacuum. It uh, doesn't mean that they're uh, uh, being manipulated by a secret society, but uh, uh, there are conspiracies, certainly. Can I yes. ask? Uh, yeah, go on. 
I was going to ask what, through all your research and all your work on just everything, do you feel like you understand history more? And do you find that it's hard to speak to just the average public about it because it's not taught in the education system? Some of the stuff, like you mentioned COINTELPRO. All my friends who go, oh, it was invading the Black Panther Party. Well, if you look at the documents, it's invading any group that the government saw as a threat. That means the KKK and other groups as well, too. But I think more evidence supports that they were really targeting the Black Panther Party. Most of all, it's where you see the FBI's work the most prominent. But to me, it's just I find that a lot of people, at least from what we get taught in our education system, are a bit disconnected from history and kind of the roots of it all. So I'm curious from your perspective through the work you've done diving into Timothy Leary, learning even about the Weather Underground, breaking him out of jail, or just learning more about the Haight-Ashbury clinics or anything that was going on when it comes to drugs. I mean, you know about Frank Olson's death. Do you find that it gets hard to talk to the public about it? And do you find that it's difficult for yourself to grasp? I mean, compared to in the beginning, compared to now. It's difficult because um, there's so much rubbish around, right, as regards to conspiracy. Um, and, and a lot of it is, uh, 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 you have to suspect that the really rubbish conspiracy theories are being, are being put about by, by the real conspirators. Yeah, uh, 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 that's one of the ironies of the situation. Now, as regards Quentel Pro, I'll just read you this quote by uh, one of uh, Richard Nixon's burglary squad. Is it uh, Howard Hunt? No, John Ehrlichman. Oh. Right? This is a direct quote. You want to know what this was really about? He asked with the bluntness of a man who, after public disgrace and a stretch in a federal prison, had little left to protect. The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and the blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know what? Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. You know what another word or term for that is? What? Helter skelter. <laughs> think okay. it through think it through come on now there was no evidence to that stupid theory i don't believe it at all it sounds so wacky and i only think we accepted it because manson himself was wacky i think manson was nuts i just there's plenty of other things the government has done to successfully treat somebody whatever you want what they deem as successful there's nobody in my mind that's unsavable. I get in this debate with so many people about Manson because I just, I don't know. I give people kind of like the benefit of the doubt. I think his life was pretty shit. I think he was a horrible human being. But I think if you really look at what happened in that trial, and I think Tom O'Neill has exposed a lot about Vincent Bugilosi's kind of methods of the way to get his convictions, I don't think that was right. 
I think uh, Tom O'Neill's book Neil's Bugliosi good in trouble. Yeah, he. And the crazy thing was that Bugliosi tried to sue him. Yes, he, yes, he did, didn't he? He even talked about himself in the third person. He said, you know what kind of name, Bugilosi? Uh, One word for me, your book will be finished. You'll be done. He said that to Tom O'Neill. I said, man, that's just someone you definitely don't want to be backing in history, but we consider him this famous prosecutor. Yeah. And uh, O'Neill spent 30 years writing that book. This goes to show if at first you don't succeed, but like you say, he got bug. He discredited Bugliosi in the end, but depressingly, Bugliosi still sells books. Pull your mic a little bit closer to you. Bugliosi still sell, sells books. Yeah, but he's gone now. So hopefully that name yeah. will be like J. Edgar Hoover. You know, it's been tarnished a little bit more. I think a lot more stuff has come out that where his name doesn't ring so many bells anymore. If you know what I mean. Yes. Well, yeah. And the FBI is now it's changed their image. If you look in the website, they actually own up to doing bad things. Yeah, they yeah. just don't publicize it. Yeah. But um, as far as I'm concerned, they're still the FBI. I don't like state agencies that aren't, aren't accountable for their actions. I mean, if they could just explain what national security means, that would be fantastic because I swear they paint that thing on everything. And I'm like, look, all right, I don't understand how Oswald's birth certificate's national security. Don't give me that. Yeah, and, and they also talk about the intelligence community, which is a term I absolutely hate. You know, there's no such thing as the intelligence community. Especially all... in intelligence services. There's no such thing as community. There's no community. The anti-community. There's... Uh, destroy communities. I got to ask one last question to you, but out of everything in the whole counterculture movement, all the names, all the figures, all the different varying things that were going on, what's one that you really haven't looked into? You might have an interest in that, you know, maybe if you're thinking about writing another book. Um, I'll tell you what's interesting is, um, the um the way the CIA, uh, the CIA tried to min, uh, uh, manipulate culture like the um uh, the cult, you know they set up this organization called the cultural freedom movement or whatever uh, the council for cultural freedom which had magazines all all over the world um and the whole thing was to um, uh, control uh, dissident aspects of uh, of culture, like um, uh, they try to they try to weaponize jazz, right, by arranging for State Department tours of um, Eastern Europe by jazz musicians to convince. People in East Eastern Europe, uh, American culture was great, and um, some of the jazz musicians, in particular uh, Dizzy Gillespie, saw through this. And uh, another one uh, was Archie Shep, 
uh, so you had this kind of contest between um, artists, be the um, uh, uh, musicians, painters, and writers, uh, some of whom allowed themselves to be uh, manipulated by the CIA for purpose of um, fame and wealth, and others who um, stood up against against uh, the uh, I mean, uh, 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 manipulation. In, in particularly, I would point it to um, James Baldwin and various other writers. So um, uh, that's something I'd, I'd like to look at a bit closer. You mentioned jazz music, but you ever look into Ernest Hemingway? Ernest Hemingway... Um, he, um, he was a writer. Yeah, he, he, and uh, he was he was um, he supported the uh, Spanish Republicans against the fascists, and initially he supported the Cuban Revolution. But um, he turned against all that. He came right wing. No, um, he. Before he died, he had very pro views of Castro, and he started getting super paranoid that the FBI was surveilling him and stalking him and doing all this type of stuff. And he had told a bunch of his friends and family about it. Well, they brought him to a mental institution because um, he couldn't like he just was locking himself away and just couldn't sleep. And uh, they gave him an ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, to fix it. And afterwards, he couldn't write. So then he went back and they did it again to him and he ended up shooting himself. Um, well, it turns out his paranoia was right because the FBI, if you go to their website, has a 500-page file on Ernest Hemingway. They were stalking him. They were watching him. That's very interesting. I didn't know that, but it was this war. Like As much as in the Cold War, they used literary writers and all these things to push out their propaganda. Uh, the FBI's COINTELPRO program and other things – they were going after musicians. John Lennon has a file for his activism in the Vietnam stuff. And then there was, I mean, everyone had, Frank Sinatra had a file. Just anyone that was considered a possible threat to the agency. And they they stalked and monitored. And in some cases, like Ernest Hemingway, you know, it led to his death. Arthur Miller. Yeah. Know, Marilyn, uh, Marilyn's husband. Yeah. So that's a... Uh... So that's an, uh, that's another field. What's crazy is that some of those figures are some of the most prominent even today. They've lasted through history, which makes you wonder, like, I don't know, what, what would they be if they were still around or made it to whatever point they would have averagely died at? Not in some horrible overdose situation or suicide or some weird unexplainable tragedy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, also we... We could mention Richard Wright, who was a member of the Communist Party. You know him? He wrote a book called Native Son. Yeah. A black black writer. I mean, he turned against communism, but he found American racism was so oppressive that he moved to Paris. But even then, the FBI wouldn't uh, wouldn't uh, leave him alone. Hell yeah, and, it's like the IRS, man. They don't stop. They don't stop. You know, the so a lot of these writers had a very hard time and um, 
when it would, uh, you know, died be, uh, before the time. It's inter interesting what you say about Hemingway. I, I didn't realize that the FBI were, had him under surveillance to that extent. Yeah, I had a I have a sh uh, YouTube short about him. I never heard it before either until someone had mentioned it in conversation. I looked up and I read his files. They definitely were, you know, if everyone, if you look up his name, everyone talks about his massive paranoia that the government was surveilling him. But then there's articles talking about because the government, yeah, was really surveilling him, you know, because he had the Castro, uh, I guess, views or voice, which is just interesting. But it just goes down another dark road of how far the extent of the body count is for the fbi i mean it's like the clintons they just somehow get away with it and next thing you know people don't talk about it <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. but david i appreciate the time man um where can people find your links uh to your books uh i can put your twitter in there as well too and also you got a sub stack yes finally we get to see the writings and it's accessible to the public i like it yes so um my blog is called the Barbarism of Pure Culture. And the Substack is a D Black Substack. And um I've just had um I've just had email from Substack saying, Congratulations, you've just published thirty six weeks in a row. That, um that uh, that puts you in the top nine percent of posters. <laughs> Well, yeah, great. I wish I was in the top 9% of earners, but there you go. Well, look, I'm going to link all your links in the description, David. It's always a pleasure chatting with you. And thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank. Stay tuned for our, our next episode. Did you say wait, David? I was just going to say, as regards the 90-second podcasts, send me an email about that. Okay. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank. Stay tuned for next episode.